directly with the correct amount. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. www.d20radio.com Thought for the day, step not from the path of the Emperor. Hello listeners, and welcome to episode 87 of the Grimdark Podcast. This is James. And this is Mike. If you're joining us for the first time, we're a podcast devoted to role-playing in the 41st millennium. Well, 40, it's 42nd now, technically, isn't it, Mike? It's M42 in, in 140K. Well, so. technically, but there's a little section, if, if you read it in the new fluff, saying that uh, this robo-girly man starts to study the Imperium. One of the things he looks at is the, is the dates, and the date could actually be anywhere between the end of the 39th and the middle of the 43rd. Nice. So... <laughs> look at we, 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 I didn't even complete the first sentence of the show... Or the first intro part of the show without us digressing. It's going to be a great show, I'm sure of it. Yeah, yeah. So, if you are listening for the first time and you haven't yet turned off, we are a podcast. We follow one of the 40k role-playing. Uh, specifically now, we're following the gaming systems created by Ulysses Games, but we have also talk, uh, talked about in the past, and we'll continue to talk about the game systems created by Fantasy Flight Games. Before we get into today's episode, um, it's been a while since we... I think it's about three weeks since we last did a show. It's just been... Yeah. Schedules haven't worked out too well, and I'm off travelling next week as well, but we managed to get this episode in before I jet it off. Uh, what have we done gaming-wise? I think we've played a couple of times D&D. Yeah, a couple of D&D games. Yeah, our own group, it's got a bit awkward this last fortnight, because so one of the players in our group of D&D is also somebody who works for me in my place of employment, and we just had a really unhappy set of circumstances where he had a really, he had a bad game. Like he, he sort of felt like the victim in the game, I think, to a degree, because of just the way the way things turned out. And shortly after that, I had to begin performance managing him at work. So um, he has, in response to those two things, extracted himself entirely from our lives and his job, um, and uh, is just dropped off the face of the earth to us. So a bit awkward. We have played since then, and we managed to, to to move along, I guess. But it's one of those sort of those gaming experiences we, we spoke about in the past when your gaming group falls apart but uh, yeah you yeah. carry on that's it so if you happen to live in the western area of Sydney and looking for a gaming group <laughs> anyway uh, but also what else have we done um, I also have been running Shadowrun missions at my local new gaming store yep. um, so I got another game of that just last night actually and what else oh, we played 40k you and I played 40k yes, yeah, your, we, your, yeah. your first exposure to 8th edition yeah yeah my first proper game yep. and I got smashed <laughs> because of Girlyman's bloody re-rolls on everything yeah just waiting, just waiting for the next back are you Mike for that one to, or for oh, chapter approved they, they're not going <laughs> to fix that they're not going to fix that I just have to take a slightly different army which I will do next time <laughs> Well, and so will I. <laughs> well, then maybe I should just try to refine that army since it worked pretty well at that point in time. But yeah, uh, yeah I mean, like completely use this army for objective taking, though. Yeah. So I, I pretty much had a. We probably should have used objectives. Yeah, too. Yeah. I, I pretty much had a phalanx that just sat there, and, and you know, I would have had to turtle it across the board to try and gain objectives. But uh, yeah. the chaos have one of those rules that allows them to control an objective with troops, even if they don't have as many troops as the other person in place. Um, I think so. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's meant to be added with most of the codexes, yeah, you know. Like yeah. so, um, yeah. Generally speaking, it's the one advantage of taking troops is that troops can hold an objective, even if they have less models in range than someone else. Yeah. The troops are deemed to be, I guess, more important. So. Yeah. The only thing is, my army's mostly berserkers. Well, that particular army, I can't really see berserkers sitting on objectives, <laughs> just sort of hanging around. It just doesn't seem like a very berserker thing. So to do. You're, you're letting the fluff get in the way of yeah. a strategic play, are you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know I've certainly done that in the past. Or at least I've certainly used the fluff in building my armies as well. Like, oh, there's no way that you put this with this. They wouldn't work well together, so I won't put those in my army. Even if, you know, mechanically... Even if they do work very well, well together. <laughs> You're right, yeah. Uh, anyway, so yeah, a bit of game for us. But what about today's show? Uh, so, a bit of news to cover off uh, on the Ulysses front, and I guess a bit of other gaming news as well um, on GW too. Uh, and I actually want to start... The first of a two-part series, because um, I, I just, I, I was going to do it all in this one show, but I thought it's just too much to go through in one show. I want to basically, for those of you who don't follow the fluff closely, bring you up to speed on all of the major events that have taken place, uh, that have sort of changed from the old 7th edition version of the game into 
the eighth edition fluff. You know, the whole the whole lead up to the fall of Cadia, uh, the return of Gulliman, the um, the hundred uh, years after that. Yeah, exactly right. The Indominus Crusade, uh, all that sort of thing. So we're going to do the first of, of two parts today. Uh, and so hopefully, if you don't follow the fluff closely, you'll learn something from it. Mike, I don't know. Have you, have you had much of a chance to really get into all the sort of events? Um, surrounding uh, the fall read, of Cadia and I've read a fair bit of it but not all of it no okay no. I've just discovered that a lot of old books have been made into audiobooks via this app I've got now so I've just been going through I'm up to the third book of the Horus Heresy again on uh, on audiobook and I've got a 27 hour flight on Saturday so yeah. I'll be to get through at least two more books there as well so yeah. you're doing the unabridged aren't you <laughs> I'm doing the unabridged version that's right yeah. yeah and I'm enjoying it you know like I can certainly see the benefit of the unabridged version there's whole whole parts that have been taken out like I, I realise because um up until now, I'd gone through the first three books, but only the abridged audiobook version. And one of the things I knew happened in the course of the Horus Heresy was Magnus the Red attempting to contact the Emperor to let him know about Horus's betrayal. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know exactly what point in the sort of timeline that took place originally. And now I'm doing the unabridged version. In book two, it actually has a scene where Magnus talks to Ahriman about whether or not he should do this ritual to the Emperor, and then basically tells Armin, okay, we're going to do it, go ahead and get get everyone ready for this big ritual. So, given that was taken out of the abridged version, I had to wonder whether they would actually would have included in the final, you know, like, if they did the later books in the abridged version, Magnus's ritual at all, you know, the, including... You'd have um, to think they would. I mean, it's a pretty major turning point, considering it unleashes the Lehman Russ on... Thousand Sons and turns a thousand sons against the Emperor. It's yeah, a pretty yeah. major event. Exactly. I mean, there's also later on when they're sort of when when Erebus is in the process of corrupting um, uh, Horus. That that you know one of the sort of the seers there lets him know that Magnus is effectively spying on this event right now, and so Erebus basically chides Magnus by just shouting at the ceiling, you know, figuring that Magnus can hear what he's saying. So yeah. that, that whole bit was taken out of the abridged version. So I'm glad I'm glad I'm doing the unabridged version. It's not just a few extra words here and there. It's whole, whole scenes and, and storylines. Yeah, taken out. So, yeah. yeah. If you have been going through Horus Heresy, I would recommend... You know, it's funny, actually, because the other thing is the audio books that I had on CD, which are abridged, have a different um, reader to the books that are done. It's not just like they recorded it one bit and cut it down. They've actually recorded them again. And so, I find with audio books, like I listen to all the Game of Thrones books as audio books, and so the the guy that reads those out had actually given each character their own unique Voice. way of speaking exactly uh, whereas and so I had that with the Horace Harris novels but they've changed substantially between the reader who read them previously where because like um, Horace Axman in that is given the nickname Little Horace he the first author or the first um, reader that I heard gave him a very sort of youthful um, almost childlike voice yeah. whereas the guy who's reading it now Toby Longworth uh, is giving a much more sort of... He's, he's even deeper than Abaddon. He's equal Abaddon. So, you know, it's like... It, it, was, it was quite different to sort of have to relearn these characters again. You know, I mean, Loken, who's the sort of the, the, the titular, not the titular character, but certainly the focal character of the first three books, sounded pretty similar. He's just a gruff, you know, typical typical marine type. But, uh, you know, I guess the rest, where they had to be variants from the characters you follow most of the time. Yeah. It was odd anyway. But, yeah, I'm still enjoying it. Um... Okay, so that's really what we're going to get to today. We're going to talk about the news, and we're going to uh, start bringing you up to speed on the fluff, and uh, hopefully you get something from it, and we'll finish it off in the next episode as well. I'm actually, um, thankfully, uh, when I'm flying off to Germany next week, I'm, I'm really hoping to be able to catch up with Ross in person again and uh, pick his brain once more about uh, what's going on in, the, in, in this game as well. So yep. maybe I'll have some, some stuff I can, I can share when I come back. I don't know. We'll see how it happens. But uh, yep. All right, let's get into the main part of the show. Command acknowledged. Accessing Imperial Archives. So on to the news. Uh, now we'll start off with, let's start off specifically with Ulysses North American News and, and Wrath and Glory. Uh, so what we saw at the start of this month being September was our first designer diary by Ross Watson. Um, and we're hoping to see one of these monthly, I think was sort of the, the, the vague promise we were looking at with these designer diaries. Now, in this case, Ross started to give us some hints towards where he's going with character creation, you know. So we speculated during the last show about how this might work, and uh, I think the term that he used in the designer diary was um, archetypes. You know, so what is the archetype? You know, maybe you can call this like class or role. I'm not sure, but uh, and he actually gave some good examples here. So he talked about the fact that different game systems have handled um, different 
archetypes or different sort of classes differently, you know. So if you think about a game like he mentioned the old West End D6 Star Wars or, you know, the current iteration of Shadowrun, you know, you've got these sort of concepts, you know, which you could say as like, okay, I'm a street samurai, I'm a smuggler, you know, I'm a deck or whatever the case may be. They don't, well, they don't do anything other than inform you as to what you might pick during the regular course of character creation. Yeah, it's, so, it's like the old concept section yeah, on the yeah, character sheet. Yeah, so I, so I could I could go, I'm going to go play Shadow in 5th edition now. Put my book, I'm going Street Samurai. First thing I'm buying is Magic 5. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, well, aren't you a, a, a magic user then? No, I'm a Street Samurai. Okay, well, I haven't broken any rules, technically speaking, so yeah, you can do it that way. Or alternatively, these things, these archetypes can actually express themselves as mechanical change to the character other classes in D&D. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, you know, a fighter gets this base attack bonus and a mage gets a different base attack bonus and that is mechanically governed by what class they use. Uh, now, Ross has indicated that with Wrath and Glory, he wanted his archetypes to fall somewhere in the middle but probably tend more towards the lower end of that spectrum or the, 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 the side of that spectrum which says there are mechanical modifiers put in place by the archetype you choose to use. So, well, that's to be expected. You'd expect someone who had the archetype of Marine yeah. to get some sort of rules-based bonus, probably to their strength and toughness, yeah. for the fact that they're a Marine. I mean, kind of simple. Yeah, that's it. So, I mean, um, it's probably it, it, it's quite early in the development for him too much information, so this is really what he's discussed in this thing, is that they, you know, we're going to look towards having you know, archetypes you can select from, uh, that will govern how you build your character and what it can or can't do. I mean, if you look at the fantasy flight game iterations of you know, of this rule system, so you you had for early editions you had basically just your career, dark areas you had a career, you had a homeworld as well, homeworld and career. Yeah. Um, you had that again in Rogue Trader, um, Death Watch. You pretty much just had your chapter and then your um, specialization, and then in uh, Black Crusade, you just had your archetype. Um, that was pretty much, there was no other sort of major building and inf- informing choices. You picked other than those archetypes as such. Then we got all the way to Dark Harry's Second Edition where you actually had like a homeworld, a background, and a role. We had three key decisions. I look at games like um, D&D. D&D is a classic example where you pick a race class. They are your two key decisions that govern the start of character creation. And, you know, you can certainly say that um, certain race class combinations are better than others. You know, so you, it, it would be true to say that a... Are you suggesting that my dwarven bard would not be effective? <laughs> well, you know, a half-orc fighter versus a half-thing fighter. Each character concept can be played, yeah. can be built, you know, but one of them is easier to to use a poor term min-max as such to, to deliver what you want. So uh, I, I personally think that that, that two... Combination choice is a, is a good way to go. I don't know. I mean, I, we, we, all we've really spoken about here so far is archetype. But um, my only concern is that when you've only got a single choice and you've got two people that want to play something similar. So two people want to play Space Marines, for example. Let's, let's, let's imagine, for example, that, like you said there, Space Marine is an archetype, for example, which gives you stat rules. Um, how do you make it so that two people who are playing, in inverted commas, Space Marine uh, have diverse enough characters through something other than just role-playing in their name? Yeah. Um, so that comes down to how much does the yeah. the archetype or the class or the specialty you know, govern over the character as such. How much freedom do you have to spend your points as you wish? That was probably one of the issues I had with some of the other systems we've played, where you just sort of feel like, oh, well, everyone's the same. Yeah. Yeah. Then I look at the fact that, um, once again, going back to the previous iterations of these 40k systems, you looked at a character sheet, and a character basically had characteristics... You know, your weapon skill, ballistic skills, strength, toughness, etc. You had your skills, and you had talents. Yep. Uh, and you had gear as well. And gear really and is... Traits. Uh, um, sorry? Well, I mean, tra- traits and talents are sort of associated together because they have mechanically the same sort of effect. Yeah. And Traits it, you couldn't really buy, talents you could. Yeah, the, 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 ac- the acquisition was different as such. Yeah. But say, saying, for example, that a character couldn't acquire a trait is the same as saying that a non-psyker couldn't acquire Sinusians as such, you know. Yeah, I know, but if the trait is third arm... Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of difficult for a normal person on the street to just suddenly grow a third arm. I mean, you can. In, yeah. in 40k, you can. But, you know, some of the other ones, you can't really get, like, quadruped. Yeah. 
Uh, whereas I compare that to other games that I've played recently. So, for example, I've been running Numenera recently. Yep. And, and Numenera, basically, your character is defined as three stats, and then s- skills are basically you have or you don't have. Um, so it's really quite... The character side is very system-wide. Um, and, and I would say Numenera is a system-like game. I prefer a crunchier system. So do I... That that whole skills of you either have them or you don't have them reminds me too much of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, where skills were essentially not, not a pointless. Not, non-weapon proficiency back in the second edition yeah, days. Yeah. It's like it's like there's weapon proficiencies and there's these non-weapon proficiencies. No one wants to wear those. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And just having skills as oh, you can drive, you can't drive. That's it. Yeah, you know, it's a bit. Eh. Oh, no worries. So anyway, so have a look on the um, the Wrath and Glory website. It's up there at ulysses.us.com. You can see more about what's going on there and read the design diary and hopefully see more in uh, in coming months as well. That was posted originally. It was September 1, but it was posted, I think, quite late in September too. So yeah. I wouldn't be expecting it. It's now, as we're recording, the 5th of October. So we're not going to see, I don't think, an October 1 straight away. Anyway, September 29 it was posted. Yeah, so uh, I think he's going to be the posting them at the end of the month, which makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Let yeah. us know what he's been working on that month. Yeah, that he can. That that he can. can. And, and we do know from his Twitter feed, he's been to Birmingham recently. Is it, is it Birmingham where GW is based? Or... Oh, no, it's not. No, um, it's Nottingham. Nottingham. Nottingham, sorry. That's right, yeah. So Birmingham is where I've got a, a work thing on. So, yeah, Nottingham. He's been in Nottingham recently for some, you know... He's linked up with the mothership to get some, you know, some key intel. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's good to see that they're carrying forward the, the fluff through the RPG. To brand well. him. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, on the GW side, so um, what have we seen recently? Now, you, you might got your hands on your Death Guard stuff, finally. Yeah, 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 I got my hands on all my Death Guard stuff, which I haven't used yet. Have, um, you, have you seen the, the new Death Guard release, like the new oh, yeah. Plague Tank and yeah, the Telling yeah, yeah. Man? Some and... of the stuff's great. Some of it, yeah, I'm not so fit, fond of. Yeah. Um, but on the whole, the majority of it looks very, very nice. Okay. Right. Yeah. So just when you say you're not so fond of, like the stats, the appearance? The... Um... The poses more than anything. Okay. Like, I think the new Typhus, the pose of the new Typhus is just not quite, he's sort of a bit too... Dynamic? Not dynamic, more more of um, dancing with the stars. Something <laughs> <laughs> down a plague rain? Well, he looks more like more like Freddie Mercury holding his uh, microphone stand aloft. He's just... <laughs> Just a, I suppose dynamic, yeah, is a good way of putting okay. it. He just looks a bit silly. He's not doing the Office of Trader Terminator any justice with that? No, not really, no. Nah. <laughs> Are you going to buy it anyway? Well, I've already got you've, a typhus. You've got the typhus, mate. I've already yeah, got the old yeah. typhus. I've got an old metal typhus, so... Yeah. I probably will, eventually. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I need to talk about... There's something I need to get off my chess games, which I was. I mentioned it to you, Mike, but I'm going to say it again for the purpose of the listeners. So, um, I've been buying up quite a bit recently. I've been expanding my Eldar army. Like I plan to do eighth edition. I think I went from about a 700 point army to about a 2500 point army in the space of the last several weeks. And one of the things I acquired in that time was the Triumvirate of the Inari, uh, or Triumvirate of the Innate. Um, and I built the models there. And I can now tell you that, um, Jane Zar has earned a reprieve because there is a new model which I hate building the most out of, out of any GW figure ever, and that is the Incarn. That that figure can die in a fire. I'll tell you now, it was the worst thing I've had to build. Like, literally, I was, like, screaming at this thing every time it fell apart when I was trying to get bits to go together. My, my wife was, like, getting a bit sort of... She went upstairs because she didn't want to keep hearing me, me go at this thing and such, you know. But, I mean, I, I've decided, you know, like, like, next time I play with my Eldar, I'm just going to... I'm going to take the Incarn... I'm going to park it in front of someone's heaviest weapon and just have it sit there and eat las gun shots and, or las, las cannon shots until it's dead, just so the model knows how much pain it put me through to build. So you're willing so, to tank a game just to, just to prove a point. That's that you right. Hate yeah, this yeah. Model. So, yeah. People people die shame. You know, I'm I'm more than happy to model shame. Yeah. <laughs> it's seriously the worst thing I've ever built. Like, I mean, you've seen it, Mike. You know, it's a nice looking figure when it's built, but it, it's it, gravity is not the friend of that model. Yeah. Uh, and usually when I've got model pieces I'm trying to put together, like the classic example is like an outstretched arm. You know, so it's joined at the it's joined at the elbow, but you know the arm the gravity wants to pull the arm downwards as such. So that's fine. Just find a box about the same height as the arm and just rest the arm on that. So that there's no you, know, you can't do that with this model. There is nothing that you're not you know putting pressure on 
that's going to cause some part of it to move. Unless literally, okay, now, if, here's my advice. If, you, if you're building in, can't do this. Put a piece on, leave it for 24 hours to dry. Come back, put a piece on, leave it for 24 hours to dry. It will take you just over two months to build, but you'll be thankful for it. You will be, it will be two months of sanity <laughs> r- 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 rather than four hours of obscenity. Um, you know, yeah. I, just, I just need to let you know. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's been my, uh, that, that, that was my model building experience. Um, but after all that, I actually did, because I talk about Jane's R in the past, how much I hated it. I never, I've never owned Jane's R. You know, I, I, I built Jane's R several times because it was coming out when I was working at GW. So I was building Jane's R's for the table or building Jane's R's for the window or more likely rebuilding Jane's R's for the table that had been broken by somebody, it had to be pinned through the toe again to actually stay on the base. Yeah. Uh, so that's why I hated Jane's R so much, you know, even though I never owned it. But now I can tell you, I actually now, I once again own, or for the first time, own Jane's R. Uh, it is a good enough figure in 8th edition. And it's still the old, it's still the old metal. Not, not, not even a fine cast. They still sell the metal Jane's R, the original one with the same weapon and everything, the same pieces um, on the GW website. So The fact that they're still selling metal models, like some of them are still metal, is, is a bit of a surprise. I think they must have manufactured loads of Jane's R's thinking, oh, this thing's going to fly off the shelves. And then a couple of people actually got it and built it and they told their friends and no one else wanted to get the damn thing. Yeah, yeah. Actually, Mike, you, so you can help me with a, um, with a conundrum of mine. So... Uh, local gaming store I've been going to recently uh, people can sell their painted models through like they've got a window there and basically half the money goes to the person half the money goes to the store um, now somebody is obviously clearing out their own army because there is a lot of metal really really nicely painted models um, on display there and like cheap cheap models so I'll give you an example um, a squad of six parts uh, six rangers Metal, fully painted, thirty bucks. Yeah, you know, um, even even a squad of um, eight striking scorpions, including um, the Exarch, um, forty bucks, fully painted. You know, um, and that's that's ridiculous. You know, now there are two things, and I want to buy some of these because I, I want striking scorpions in my army, for example. And, they, and they've even given the Exarch the weapon I want to give my Exarch. You know, yeah. Um, but there are two things that are stopping me. Okay, one of them is the fact that. I can't paint this good. This person's even actually gone to the trouble of, like, cutting off the original solid bases and putting, like, having them stand on bits of scenery and that sort of stuff. You know, like they're on upturned stones or put up on a on a skull that sort of stuff. Like the rest of my army would never be painted that well, nor base the same. Yeah. So they would stand out in my army horrifically. Other problem is that I, for my older army, are building Uthway, and they've gone for Yandan. Uh, um, uh, I think it's Yandon. It's the it's, no Yandon's yellow. Um, what's the red red Sam red with the black salmon? That's it. Um, they've gone for that colouring now. That shouldn't matter with the aspect uh, with boss. the aspect warriors, except for the fact that some people do put elements of their craft into the aspect warriors. Like for example, on the plume feathers of a dire adventure. So for example, their their um, uh, striking scorpions do have costume elements that make the same red and black style. Uh, uh, of their craft world, so yeah, and, and I wouldn't want to paint over those because they've, they've clearly been varnished as well. They've been nicely finished. They've been nicely finished. So, what do I do, Mike? You know, I need your advice here. You know, like, do I? <laughs> um, for the aspect warriors, I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah, yeah, uh, it wouldn't bother me. And the fact that things are going to look different from the way you've painted, I can tell you this now: the models that you paint at the very start of your painting journey with an with an army will look very different from the ones at the end. Yeah. You'll, Improving painting vastly as you go, things will look different. Um, and basing, oh, most of my stuff's based and looks different as it is. I mean, my Tyranid army is a mishmash of models from second edition all the way through to now. Yeah. Um, nothing looks like it belongs together. Most of them are painted in different schemes as I changed my mind halfway through. I mean, I've been painting that army for over 20 years and it's still not finished. Yeah. Um, yeah, don't worry about it. I mean, I've ever been considering, like, I, I looked at some of the old marine figures I've got, and I, I won't put them on marine army. I've got some old second edition plastic Terminators on the 25mm bases. Oh, yeah. um, the Monopose, you know, and I'm not going to go... They, they look so poor and small compared to current Terminators. I don't, I don't include them in the list of figures I could possibly deploy in my army, you know, so... Uh, just sell them secondhand on eBay. That's what it's for. Yeah, you reckon? Okay. Yeah, oh, yeah, someone will still pay for them. Okay, no worries. I was just going to ask you, Mike, do you want a... Uh, I don't do this on the show. Would you like a young Ironman model? Because I'm thinking about buying Burning a Prospero 
for the um, for oh. the Mark Three Marines and oh, have it used for Harriman. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Love that model. Okay. The, yeah, no the old the old fashioned Harriman. Yeah, that's it. From yeah, uh, yeah from Burning Frostbite. That's a beautiful model. Okay, no worries. Yeah, because I'll, I'll make use of like this because the Scissors of Science and Custodians obviously are current age, and there's no reason you can't use Mark Three and Mark Four Marines in Eighth Edition anyway. It's, it's even got rules for the. The Horus Heresy era Terminators and Dreadnoughts. And yeah, the, 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 the Cataphracti and the um, Tartarus armor. Yeah. And the Mark Three and Mark Four armors, I've been using a mix match of those with Chaos bits to make up my armor. Well, it makes sense for you as well because it's how much Chaos, chaos tend yeah. to, you know, vary up their armor or somewhere. Um, okay, so getting back to DW news, the other news obviously is we're seeing more Imperial Guard stuff coming out this next month. I think the book comes out on Saturday. Yeah. As we, so I actually fly out Saturday afternoon. And it comes out Saturday morning, so I've got my pre-order in. I'm going to try and get it, and that'll, I'll have my audio, my Horus Heresy audio books, and my new Imperial Guard Codex to read on my on my 27-hour yeah, flights. Yeah. So. We've also had um, Deptus Mechanicus has come out. Oh, that's been yeah, so yeah, that's it. So new list. It's not the Imperial Army I've ever actually gotten into. I guess I, I have Call as a figure because I bought. Oh, he's the, powerful as always. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can heal p- other models. As he sees oh, well, we'll be talking about Call in the main part of the show today as well, so yes. you'll find out a little bit more about why you're so powerful. Well, maybe not till part two, but you know, we'll, we'll be, it will come up in today's discussion anyway. Yep. Um, I think it's probably it from the GW side. I mean, they've done quite a bit of fantasy as well. Um, I think they've released a new board game for fantasy, uh, Stormspire, I think it's called. Yeah, it's right? Necromunda for fantasy. Okay, no worries. Because Necromunda in November is coming out too. Yes, so. yes, they've announced a date now. Yeah. So. Let's see if Wrath and Glory gives us options for gangers. You know, maybe you can get some uh, some Necromunda role playing going. I don't know. You know. Yeah, yeah. No reason why not. <laughs> yeah, uh, one of our local, one of our uh, friends has actually recently and getting onto G, onto GW gaming or computer gaming news now has recently uh, started playing Eternal Crusade, um, and it made it encouraged me to pull out and play it again. And like it's improved since last time I played it, but it was still a bit buggy. The, the best match I got into in terms of fun match playing. Um, I had no weapon sounds, which was you know annoying at best. Yeah. And, and I didn't want to drop out because it's hard, you know, with especially playing in Australia where the times don't line up. To get an actual match with several players, I didn't want to drop out just to get my weapon sounds back because I wanted to to actually play. take. I, I was in a good match. I had a good mix of good mix of team members and everything as well. So I'm like, I just want to finish this with no weapon sounds. Yeah. Um, and it didn't. I got, one thing it did make it advantageous was. Um, when you start running on ammunition, you get this sort of this dit 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 sound to warn you you've got to reload. And of course, I had that sound, just not the gunfire sound. So I, it, that wasn't being drowned out by the gunfire. I knew whenever I had to reload, uh, <laughs> which was a lot because I was pretty heavy on the trigger. Uh, other people in the group had to keep, keep passing me gear, right? passing me um, passing you ammo until I worked out that. Uh, and I don't know if this is just this is my observation, but it seems that rapidly tapping the mouse button is more accurate than holding the mouse button down. Um, like you get less spread if you just rapidly tapping. Like I could, you know, if I saw it, I was we were doing the PVE environments sort of stuff. So against Tyranids, and like I could see a Tyranid across the other side of the map, and if I held the trigger down, I'd get one or two shots to hit it. But if I tapped almost the, almost every single time, the first shot I fired with each tap would actually hit it. So yeah, yeah. It makes sense. Yeah, that's it. I also played Sanctus Reach for the first time. We, we talked about that in a previous in a previous episode as being getting good reviews. So I had a game of that. Um, and that, that's interesting. So it reminds me a lot of um, XCOM. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that sort of style where you do all your stuff and then you, they do all their stuff. And it, it really comes down to maximizing your your action points as such. So, yeah. 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 All right, that's it for the news. Excellent. So let's um, jump into the main part of the show. Knowledge is power. Hide it well. So this will be the first part, I'd say, of two, uh, of bringing you up to speed on the events that have occurred in the 40k universe from the end of the 31st millennium to the start of the 42nd that basically take you from the what we've known and loved for the last seven editions up to the Dark Imperium of 8th edition. Uh, the, the, the key events and key players. And I'm going to refer you back for a moment to episode 73 of the show where we reviewed Death Mask. Death Mask was the last box set produced for 7th edition. And we spoke there about the story of Death March. Actually, before we talk about the story of that again, I'm going to say that um, now I, I really regret something with Death Mask. I reviewed it so well when we when we actually um, uh, spoke about it on the show, but I have a big regret behind Death Mask now, I'm going to say. Yeah. That is, so recently I bought Betrayal at Kauth. Okay. Now, I have no interest in playing Betrayal at Kauth, even though I've heard it's a good game. I bought it because I wanted 
30 Horus Heresy Era Marines, you know, several Terminators, you know, characters, etc. And I'm ordering from Forge World the, the upgrade parts to make them look like Salamanders because I plan to build build out my Salamanders Horus Heresy army. So I only bought the, I only bought it for the models. Yeah. Now I bought Death Mask to at the time see if I wanted to get back into 40k, you know, with seventh edition. Um, didn't really happen. I've gone back in with eighth edition. So after I bought Death Mask, I played it once. And I played it once against my five-year-old son, just to have a bit of a laugh. And I played it poorly so that he could win and not have a tantrum. Um, but when I built the models from Death Mask, even though they came on conventional sprues, they weren't like custom models just for that. They were the standard Death Watch sprues, the standard Elder Harlequin sprues. I built all those models exactly how they were described in the points cost in the scenarios given in that box set, you know. Yeah. Um, now... You regret that because the gear loadout is crap. It's not, that, it's not that it's crap. It's more a case of that it's like, there's nothing tactical about it. It's like, hmm, you know, what weapons do I give these guys? Well, let's give two of them Harlequin's Quisses and one of them Harlequin's Caress and the other two Harlequin's Blades and weapons. Oh, okay, one of them a Newell Disruptor and a couple of Shuriken Pistols. And it's like, none, none of the groups are like, okay, this is like a range group. This is a close combat group. This, is, this group is most effective at this point because they've just got this mismatch of weapons, which you probably wouldn't do. Look, don't get me wrong. My, my Grey Knights army that I built, since I found you could do a good mix of weapons, Pretty much all my squads so far have a mix of weapons, you know, with the, with the Nemesis Force weapons. But none of those really contradict themselves. N- no no Grey Knight melee weapon contradicts another weapon in the, in the squad as such. You know, you can happily charge in with them and use them, whereas you will certainly get to points with the Elder Harlequin weapons where it's like, well, at this range I can only fire so many. If I get too much closer, then I'm going to get into close combat faster than I expect to, even though they're, they're brutal in close combat. I just probably wouldn't have built them the way that I did build them for the purposes of Death Mask. So that's my one regret. I'm not going to go and buy a second Death Mask box because of it. You know, I'll just go and buy more Harlequins or more more Death Watch. You know, I don't need a second um, Watch Captain Artemis. You know, no. just, <laughs> that's fair it. enough. Okay, but I digress. Back to the point. So getting back to the story of Death Mask, we discussed at the time. So basically, Eldar Sears for some time had determined that. Um, there was this nascent Eldar god uh, known as the Innate. Uh, and the belief that these seers formed was that uh, over time, the, the souls of that Eldar begin to fill the infinity circuits of the craft worlds. And that at some point in the future, when every single Eldar soul has now been drawn into infinity circuits, that all those circuits will merge into one giant infinity circuit and birth this nascent god, uh, which is a god of life and death, uh, and this god would then do battle with She Who Thirsts, which is their name for Slanesh, yep. um, and would in turn subdue it, potentially even merge those souls into it, like sort of bringing together the dual nature of the Eldar again that they'd hived off through Slanesh, um, and thus creating a new balance uh, that would then lead to the rebirth of the Eldar race in a better form. Yeah, That was sort of the belief. Um, now, Eldred uh, Ulthran, one of the uh, Farseers of the Earthway craft world, one of the major characters from the Old Irish side, I should say, been around for a long time and is sort of at that later stage in his Farseer life where his body is beginning the crystallization process where most Farseers would go to the uh, their craft world and become one with the ship. Um, no, he was raging against the dying light and decided that he was going to enact a ritual um, that would be designed to kickstart the, um, uh, the, the birth of an aid. Um, at the without without wiping out his entire race at the paltry price of a few thousand Eldar souls and the disablement of every single craft world and the destruction of its infinity circuit effectively. Um, and, and that the attempt to that ritual was the subject of the Death Mask board game. Uh, now, of course, Watch Captain Artemis of the Death Watch uh, became aware of, well, not so much aware of his plan, but aware of where he was, and through the interaction of the Death Watch, that particular ritual was thwarted. You know, but the the idea itself maybe had some merit. Uh, in fact, potentially part of where they got to with the ritual may have triggered some small part of the awakening of an aid, potentially. Yeah. Um, okay, so flash forward a bit. Um, later on in the 40, uh, 41st millennium, Abaddon launches his 13th Black Crusade, yeah. which, you know, basically was to become the largest mobilization of both Chaos and Imperium forces outside of the Horus Heresy. Um, obviously, Abaddon had launched many Black Crusades in the past, 
Twelve others. To yeah, be twelve. Fact. Twelve. Exactly right. Yep. Uh, of, were they all abandoned? Were they, were they all abandoned? Or <sighs> there's some debate about this. How, how it's counted the yeah, yeah. Because I mean, it used to be that not all the Black Crusades were by abandoned. Then they tried to change it later on and retcon it. Originally, I think the third Black Crusade was led by Angron of the World Eaters when he turned up at Armageddon and absolutely trashed the planet. Then they changed their mind and they said, no, that wasn't a Black Crusade. A Black Crusade can only be led by Abaddon. So Abaddon's done 12 Black Crusades. I mean, the fact that it's called Abaddon's 13th Black Crusade potentially applies that it is anyway, but... uh... Let's assume right, he's, had, he's, he's, he's experienced this. He's, he's tried it a few times to varying degrees of success. Yeah. Um, now, through his various sorcerers and seers, he had learned a couple of things. First off, he'd learned that these ancient pylons, these monolithic pylons existed on Cadia, pre, pre-imperial um, things, that somehow were partly responsible for holding... The warp at bay, you know, stabilization of the Cadian gate. Yeah, effectively of the of the um, of the Eye of Terror. Uh, and what's more is that the more, I guess, warp energy was sort of thrust upon these pylons, the more unstable they became. They sort of vibrated with psychic energy as they tried to contain the unfettered warp. Uh, so his plan basically was a to find a way to destroy those pylons, hopefully resulting in the planet itself being swallowed up by the Eye of Terror and becoming not only a fall of a great imperial world, but a new demon world from which to launch future assaults. Um, and also his plan was, rather than simply attacking Cadia directly, was to use multiple forces to join his aid, mainly the Death Guard and the Empress Children, um, to claim and capture a number of the worlds around Cadia in order to effectively surround the planet and give himself unfettered access to it for the purposes of invasion. Yeah. So, simple enough plan. Simple enough. Yeah, right. Encircle, <laughs> invade. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Catch Cadia, question mark, profit. Um, so, uh, he managed to bring in a number of forces, including the planet killer, um, with you know, his, his, his planet killing ship. Uh, the Nurgle ships, the Plague Claw and the Terminus S, both very powerful ships in their own right, along with two Blackstone Fortresses he had lying around from previous engagements. Uh, and of course, from you know, gothic, sorry, from the from, Gothic, I think gothic that was sector. the 11th Crusade. Yeah, when, when, when he went to the Gothic sector, anyway, yes, yeah, so that's yeah. where the whole, the, um, the whole, uh, Blackstone Fortress thing. Uh, so, and of course, you know, this massive assault force coming through the warp did begin to overload and, and destabilize the, um, uh, the pylons. So initially, Chaos experienced a lot of success. Several worlds were conquered by the Death Guard. Uh, by the Empress' children. There was even actually a betrayal from within the Imperial Guard on uh, Cadia. So basically, um, Cadia recalled as many units as was, was possible back to Cadia to assist in the defense of it. And um, the Volscani Cataphrats, who were one of their sort of former groups, uh, did arrive and join them, but then opened fire on the others, basically, when they were marshalling, um, you know, which further limited their, their ability to respond. Um, and uh, eventually, through all that, the world itself was surrounded by chaos, but still not conquered. And I think this is where we saw most of the fluff during 7th edition. We're sort of at this middle point of the 13th Black Crusade, but it, it didn't end there. Yeah. Abandon's plan, then, was to use one of the Blackstone Forges, known as the Will of Eternity, to destroy Cadia. You know, it, it had planet-destroying capability, but unfortunately, Cadia had planetary shields. And he wasn't going to be able to destroy the planet without getting those shields down. There were several service attacks launched, several attempts to bring those shields. Several times the shields did go down, but, you know, either the mechanic managed to get involved fast enough and repair them. Once the Space Wars even came in and sort of held up his forces in the system before they could actually bring the Will of Eternity into, you know, to a prime position on the planet. And, you know, every attempt to destroy the planet up until that point was, was completely thwarted. Um, at the same time, uh, we mentioned before, Call, so Tech Magus Belisarius Call, um, had actually managed to get to Cadia during the, the, the surrounding of it, because he'd been instructed by the Harlequin Shadow Seer, uh, Silandri Veilwalker. I don't know how he had contact with her, but let's assume that, um, what, was... Why the head tech priest of Mars had contact with, with a Harlequin? Well, I don't think, I don't, I don't think it was a tech, I think it was just a tech priest, like he was a major still, but he was. He's a major major. Yeah, I mean, he had his own ship, you know, but he was sort of 
Vorting about the galaxy doing his own thing. Yeah, he's not the fabricated um, general, but he is one of the major. Exactly right. But anyway, so Val Walker had actually given him directions to a, a former Imperial world that had been destroyed during the Fourth Black Crusade, where he found ruins of similar pylons to the ones on Cadia. And he began to study that technology. And, and using that information, he um, flew to Cadia on the hope that he could somehow supercharge the pylons on Cadia you know, effectively limiting the powers of chaos and potentially even reducing or even closing the Eye of Terror with the power of these pylons. Um, okay, so at this point, Abaddon's still attacking the surface. Uh, at some point, he came; uh, his forces came very close to destroying the shield generators. But at that point in time, Saint Celestine, who had previously been martyred on multiple occasions, reappeared on the planet of um, Acadia, or so it was Acadia, including reappearing with hundreds of sisters of battle that had been thought lost to the warp for, for many years. Uh, and there's some, you know, emergence of this particular force, which included her actually resurrecting two fallen um, canonesses of different orders, who, if you buy the model of Saint Celestine, comes with two Gemini Superior, her sort of followers. They are the two canonesses that she... Uh, Eleanor, and jo- Eleanor and Guinevere. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, she was able to sort of turn the battle on the ground. At the same time... Uh, the Phalanx, which is the fortress monastery of the Imperial Fists, had arrived and with, you know, the combined forces of Celestine and the Imperial Fists, they were able to destroy the Will of Eternity. You know, to actually destroy the Blackstone Fortress. And, hence sort of, you know, screwing up Abaddon's plans very well. Yeah. Uh, Abaddon, you know, he's, he's, he takes all things in stride. He's, he's not the sort of person to get angry. He's the sort of person to get very angry. Um, he then attacked the planet service himself. Um, seeking to, you know, destroy the shields, whatever he could do to sort of, you know, conquer Cadia. And it was about this point in time that Call was able to complete his modification of the pylons. He switched them on, and pretty much every single Psyker demon, including Celestine herself, on the planet of Cadia, was completely depowered by um, by the pylons being switched on. Um, you know, nothing could use psychic power. Creatures of the warp were horrifically damaged. Um, and unfortunately, at that particular time, you know, Celestine was beating Abaddon, but now Abaddon is, you know, effectively fighting a mortal, um, was able to sort of, you know, fight her into a corner and nearly had a killing blow before Inquisitor Greyfax got involved. Uh, and in the distraction, Celestine was able to impale Abaddon with her sword, uh, not fatally, but certainly seriously enough that he needed time to, you know, go away and, and recover. Uh, recover. So he decided to withdraw, effectively ending the 13th Black Crusade, but in, you know, never wanted to be not unspiteful, he decided to get his followers to attach engines to the floating debris of the Will of Eternity and fly the remains of the ship into the planet's surface, basically. And um, that that act, you know, that, that, all those massive pieces of Blackstone Fortress big enough to destroy a planet, hitting the planet basically cracked it in two, uh, effectively destroying Cadia and um, annihilating the power of the pylons to keep the, the warp at bay. Um, some survivors of Cadia managed to uh, to flee aboard the Phalanx um, to the ice planet of uh, Calisus at the edge of the Cadian system. Uh, and they went there because Celestine herself had received a vision from the Eldar telling her to bring the survivors to that particular ice world. Uh, also, Abaddon Sears aboard the Spirit of Vengeance uh, did warn him that they believed that Call, who was with the survivors, had some precious artifact with him. Uh, and so Abaddon dispatched the Black Legion uh, to pursue them to um, Calisus. But uh, the, uh, the Eldar that were on the ice planet waiting for them were able to help repel the, uh, the Alpha Legion, oh, sorry, sorry, the Black Legion, and take the survivors into the webway. They could have been Alpha Legion. It was true. <laughs> the survivors could have been Alpha Legion, for all we know. Yeah. <laughs> the, could Legion. Be, the Elder could have been. Okay, carry Exactly. Um, okay, so I'm going to flash back a moment now. So, so that, that's sort of that's the imperial side of the fall of Cadia. Okay, I yeah. want to talk about what's going on somewhere else in the galaxy at this point in time concurrently. Uh, so, is it Bob the farmer, it's Bob bringing the farmer. in the, the, the bountiful <laughs> harvest for the emperor. No, it's 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 Bob the Dark Eldar on on uh, in Kamora. <laughs> so um, bringing in a bountiful imp- <laughs> harvest. <laughs> uh, so, little known fact about Kamora. Um, one of the things in the bowels of Kimura is a uh, something known as Kane's Gate, uh, and Kane's Gate is basically a gateway that links 
Kimura to the warp. I, I, I like, like not via the webway, like unfettered access from the warp to Kimura. And of course, it's been sealed on the Kimura side. You know, it's the, the Dark Elder are more afraid of the demons and the demons are the Dark Elder. Um, but, you know, over the last, you know, centuries that it's been there, every time there's been a warp storm or something, you know, um, the gate has weakened somewhat. It's like the sort of constant cracking of the Emperor's throne. It's a sort of portent to doom as, you know, the chains that seal it crack and, and fall. Um, and, you know, and things, foul things from the far side of the door beat on it. Uh, and of course, um, uh, Astrobel Vect, the, the effective leader of Kimura, has always kept its existence as much as possible a secret. Yeah. Uh, and another Archon, um, Lady Aurelia Malice, who's Archon of the Cabal of the Poison Tongue, uh, learned of the gate's existence and also the fact that it was failing. She'd learned that, um, Vect was, uh, recruiting nulls wherever possible to sort of control it. And her belief became that Vect wasn't planning to defend against a demonic incursion. He was planning for it, planning to use it to destroy anyone who would be against him as such in the, in the eternal domination of Kimura. So Malice began to slowly get ready for a war within Kimura. Um, you know, she planned to effectively um, uh, betray him at some point, or uh, betrayal, or whatever it's there, but pretty much amass forces, get get infiltrated into his own cabal, etc., get ready for battle. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, uh, when the same phenomena that happened to the pylons to, to strengthen them or to make, make them become unstable when uh, Abaddon brought his whole crusade fleet through, that was enough of a, a shock to the... Um, uh, to the to the gate to make Malice decide, okay, now is the time for me to strike against Vect. And so this this two-faction war began on the streets of Kimura between Vect's forces and Malice's forces. Yeah. At the same time, living within Kimura at the time was Avrain. Um, and Avrain was a former member of Craftword Bealtan, former dancer, warrior, etc., um, been through many paths who had previously been captured and was now a prisoner gladiator in the pits of Kimura. Nothing particularly special. How could it happen to any elder? Um, any case, she was defeated in combat, and as she lay dying, um, the Aeneid resurrected her as its chosen emissary. Uh, that, that, that exact, her rebirth within Kimura caused this junction that finally shattered Cain's Gate, allowing demons to pour into the city. So, while you know, Kimura is now not completely demonic-controlled, demonic incursions happen regularly now in Kimura and such, and so the people there are now fighting against that as well as the, each other. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, Avrain managed to escape Kimura with the help of another figure known as the, the Vaisar, and uh, they also learned, similar to what um, Eldrad had, that there may be a way to uh, awaken in aid without the total sacrifice of the Eldar. It would still require... Lots of Eldar souls, but apparently there was a method known as the Seventh Path. Uh, and in order to enact this method, all they needed was to collect the five lost crone swords of the Eldar. That's yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, so now, while the Nade, well, well, sorry, while the Rain came to learn this, uh, the Force of Chaos also came to learn this too. So they were dedicating themselves to making sure that uh, Rain wouldn't get her hands on those crone swords. So. The first place he went to was uh, Craftworld Bill Time. Obviously, she still had contact there, and she was aware that at least some of the um, the, the Crone Swords were stored there. Uh, at the same time, Chaos had discovered a, uh, a webway portal um, from a conquered Maiden world that they, they claimed, uh, and they were also attacking um, uh, the Brailton Craftworld through the webway, uh, led by uh, the Mask, so the Mask being... Uh, Slanesh's former handmaiden and sort of foremost among his demonettes, although I think she's actually outcast. Yeah, she, outcast. She's, she's an outcast handmaiden. Yeah. Yeah, but a, a powerful demonette, effectively. Powerful, very powerful. That's it, yeah. Um, and, and it was her... She was attempting to corrupt the uh, the infinity circuit of, of Beltan. Um, so, uh, Evrain led a force of Inari, which included followers from Primarily at this point in time, Harlequins and Dark Elder. So Dark Elder who joined her through her escape from Kimura, uh, but also Harlequins that had joined her because she was both known to Vale Walker as well, like, like from previous encounters, like they previously know each other from, from their former lives, uh, but also because Vale Walker had sort of pre- 
had seen the future of what would be involved with the Anari, and so they uh, they they went to help the craft world defend against the forces of um, of slash primarily demonettes. Yeah. Um, they were successful, although it came at a certain cost. Uh, basically, um, the corruption of the Infinity Circuit had begun, um, but uh, Avrain was able to effectively channel power into the Infinity Circuit, consuming the souls of several thousand Eldar in order to birth the Incarn. You know, the sort of uh, an avatar of... Uh, uh, no, it's, it's, all, it's all the Y words. <laughs> the Innate. The avatar of the Innate. Uh, which they were able to use to, to stop the mask and drive her and her forces away and claim the, the, uh, the swords from, from Beltan. Uh, and of course then, Craftwood Eldar, including, um, Eldrad, chose to join her as well. I thought you were going to say all the Eldar suddenly decided to change their name from Eldar to Eldari. Yeah. <laughs> They've always been that way. It's, it's, <laughs> they, they made a, they made a snap decision there and then. <laughs> That's it. Um, okay, so, uh, the next uh, place that she was heading to was to Cryforty Yandon, where um, uh, forces of uh, Demon Prince and Nurgle were attacking that craft world, uh, and she was moving to um, to also stop them. Uh, now that world was being defended by Prince Ariel uh, of Cryforty Yandon, and um, she arrived there a bit too late, like Ariel had fallen in combat. But using her, um, the powers given to her by the innate in terms of her life, life and death, she was able to effectively resurrect um, Ariel and help him to um, basically plunge the spirit, his spirit twilight into the engine of the space hulk that the Nurgle Fed had turned up in, effectively destroying or shutting it, at least shutting it down and rendering the, the Nurgle Fed impotent, effectively unable to continue the battle against the craft world or pursue it in any case. Uh, at that point in time, they also learned that the Spear of Twilight, despite being a spear, was actually one of the remaining, uh, one of the remaining crone swords. Um, I think there was actually a, a, also a final encounter for her um, on Belial 4, um, where she had to recover one last, um, one last crone sword. Um, don't know, I'm going to my notes here. Yeah, I mean, there were parts of ancient craft world there, but in any case, she was able to recover by battling demons. She was able to recover um, the last crone sword and therefore uh, open the seventh path and unleash some of the power of um, an aid enough that the Inari have now become effectively a faction within the Aldari. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was actually uh, Evrain's forces, uh, with the advice of uh, Valwalker, that then headed to. Clysis uh, to uh, uh, to help the Imperial the survivors from from uh, the fall of Cadia, uh, and basically their decision there was that uh, they discovered that Call's great artifact that Chaos was seeking was a number of things. First off, he had uh, armor that had been built by Gul, so it basically came out that Call himself was over ten thousand years old, and had actually been entrusted by Gulliman with the knowledge that Gulliman knew he was going to fall before Fulgrim and that he was to bring um, Gulliman back at some point in the future. He, you know, sort of implying you'll know when sort of thing. Uh, and that the armour he'd been given that had been crafted would be uh, like a life support engine that would be able to sort of keep Gulliman alive no matter how um, harsh his injuries. Uh, and the belief was that Evrain's uh, ability over life and death would allow her to give his body the life required to come out of its comatose state. Yeah. Um, she could jump start him and then they could keep him that's alive. right yeah and and Call also apparently had the Emperor's Sword and um, several thousand Primaris Marines in stasis on board his ship um, shame he didn't use those during <laughs> KDF <fight>, hey? <laughs> he didn't have permission yeah, he didn't have permission so he, 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 nothing if not a good boy He's following Gulliman's words to letter Gulliman's words from 10,000 years ago yeah uh, and so they set off through the webway towards uh, McCrag in the hope of uh, raising Gorman. And I think we will cover off... So next time, we'll cover off Gorman's Return, um, the Terran Crusade, and the Indominus Crusade, uh, along with the fates of those characters we've discussed. So. And the expansion of the Eye of Terror. And the, exp- the expansion of the Eye of Terror, exactly right, yeah, which, which is all part of the Terran Crusade anyway. But uh, Yeah. Yeah. 
Sorry, did you use anything new there, Mike? Anything that you were not that I didn't really know much about the Elder stuff. No, you, you don't pollute yourself, you pollute my knowledge of the Xenos? Not really, no. <laughs> what they get up to is these filthy Xenos things. And they can okay. do those filthy Xenos things in filthy Xenos ways, well, in filthy Xenos places without me knowing. I will it. tell you something about, once we stop recording this, but I'll tell you something about a rain which will come up in the next episode, which will interest you as a Thousand Suns player. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, anyway, so we'll cover off that uh, next time. I'm going for a bit of a shorter show this time because you know we're obviously focused on the new game system. So we'll, we'll finalise the sort of the main part of the show there, and we'll move on to our um, uh, feedback and discussion topic. So. Okay. All astropaths in the choir chamber. Message incoming. Okay. So before we finish the show off, we'd like to do a bit of a community section where we talk about any sort of feedback we've got. We've had a few things come through in the last uh, few weeks since our last episode. First one is that um, Jacob contacted us via Facebook and asked, what's happening with our Dark Harry Second Egg game that we've been putting onto YouTube and onto our webpage? Are we going to keep doing that because it was coming up to the part that he uh, that, that he was really looking forward to? Um, I'm going to be really honest here. is I, I don't see us keeping that game going. Um, th- there's a couple of reasons behind it, but probably the most, most pressing one is the fact that really, right now we're sort of moving on to covering... You know, Wrath and Glory now, um, and it's quite a different system. So I think that, you know, we'll definitely look to get something going once Wrath and Glory is, is out. Um, you know, some sort of online game potentially, but we probably won't be returning to the, uh, the Dark Heresy game, uh, at all, at all, I would say. I'll be honest. I mean, what do you think, Mike? Is probably. I think the bigger issue is the fact that getting time to, Get everyone together is is the big issue. That's it. Yeah, exactly. And, w- and one of the players who didn't have a girlfriend, I've got a girlfriend, so that's much. It makes things harder to organise as well, you know. And she's not a gamer either, so yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry, Jacob. I was enjoying it too. Um, but yeah, I, when it comes to prioritising the time, um, I'd rather sort of start playing towards doing something when Wrath and Glory becomes available uh, that we can then post up online as well. So. Uh, that's one one. Okay, next one is we actually got a message via Facebook from Manuel uh, regarding a website I was previously unaware of that was actually linked from the FFG forums. Uh, the website is called Homebrew Guides on uh, Lodge Blackman Games, and they actually produce a number of uh, homebrew additional rules for the different game settings. So, for example, there they've got a supplement for doing more with Imperial Guard in Dark Heresy. Uh, they've got uh, Empress Angels, which is a, a rule supplement for Death Watch, which gives advancement beyond rank 8, new specialties, Centurion Armor, Space Marine Starship rules, if you want to do Starship Combat, for example. Yeah. There's also rules for playing Trade Legions using Death Watch rules. Um, a whole bunch more stuff for uh, Road Trade, including an Eldar Guide, um, Necron Guide, etc. E- even Tyranids. So for those people that wanted to play Tyranids, uh, you could potentially do it using Road Trader rules by going to uh, Lodge Blackman Games. So I'll make sure we include a link for that in the show notes. Yep. Um, finally, I've been chatting to uh, Robert Lowe again in the last month. So Robert, you may recall, is the brains behind our original plot hooks and war gear section. Uh, he was also one of the people that worked on the um, uh, the Lord Inquisitor, uh, animated, uh, or, uh, pretty animated, uh, not trailer, but uh, I guess prelude. Um, he has been working for a long time on a scenario that follows on from the two published scenarios we saw in the core book and then in um, the, the, fo- second, the first follow-up book for Dark Heresy 2nd Edition. So using the same settings for that, uh, taking the story a bit further. Uh, he's gotten it up and going now, and um, he's only issues had a couple of th- problems with hosting it. So I've offered to host it on our site as well so that it can be made available for fans. Um, I have actually just sent a copy across to uh, GW just to double-check to make sure that there's nothing in there that we need to worry about from a copyright point of view. But as soon as I get the, the, the green light from them, I'll put it up on the website and we'll include a link there as well. So yep. a lot of hard work by, by Rob and his mates in that particular uh, document as well. And, and it's very professionally put together. So I'm really looking forward to being able to host that on, on, the, um, on the site as well. Yep. So if you do want to contact us, there's many ways to do it. Uh, you can go through our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash grimdartpodcast, our Google Plus page, which is plus.google.com slash plus sign grimdartpodcast. Uh, we've got a Twitter account, which is at grimdartpodcast. You can email us at grimdartpodcast. Uh, uh, that, yeah, that's right. Sorry. And, um, yeah, that's, that's a bit for the show. And Mike, I didn't mention before, by the way, but I don't know if you saw, but uh, 
FFG have actually released now their beta rules for Legend of the Five Rings RPG. Yes, yes, you, did mention. Yeah, using the coloured dice system that we've seen in Star Wars and will be coming out in Genesis as well. Yeah. So it was an old school L5R fan. I'll be checking that one out. You're not a, as big L5R fan, right? but... Uh, not really, no. I've never really been a huge fan of it. All right. Well, you and I have to have a chat after the show, actually, because I, I ended up in a long conversation with somebody the other day who is a very big mage fan. Yeah. I know that's certainly one of your favourite game systems, so... Yeah. Um, it wasn't an argument, just a, just a lot of interesting conversation. Anyway, we hope you enjoyed the show. Um, yeah, I apologise for our strange format for a bit while we just sort of follow along with the development of the new game. I, I guess once the game comes out, we'll sort of have a much more structured approach to it. Or as we know more about the game, I don't think they're going to do some sort of beta or playtest that will be available, but uh, yeah, if that comes out and we, we can cover it, we will. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy the show and we look forward to catching you next time. This podcast is not endorsed by or affiliated with Games Workshop or Fantasy Flight Games. Warhammer 40,000, Dark Heresy, Rogue Trader, Death Watch, Black Crusade, Only War, Eternal Crusade, and all associated properties are trademark and or copyright of Games Workshop Limited. Fantasy Flight Games is a trademark of Fantasy Flight Publishing Inc. All other materials are trademark and or copyright of their respective owners. All original content is copyright of the Grimdark Podcast. All rights are reserved by their respective owners. Our theme music comes from Mibio's Music Alley. Music.mibio.com.